0: Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte for New Books in Psychology in New York. And today we're going to be talking about perception. Do we really see the world as it is? Or is such a thing impossible? And more importantly, how can our knowledge of the way perception works help us be more successful and more creative? My guest, Bo tackles these questions in his new book entitled Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently, published in 2017 by Hatchet Books. I want to tell you a little bit about my guest. Bo is a neuroscientist specializing in the biology and psychology of perception, And he has more than 25 years experience doing research on human perception and behavior with over 60 publications and two academic texts. He's a professor at University of London Goldsmiths and visiting scholar at NYU. And he's also founder and CEO of The Lab of Misfits, a creative agency grounded in principles of perception. Welcome, Bo.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you.
0: So... Tell us about the book. How did you come to write it? How did you come up with the idea for it?
1: How did I come up with the idea for Deviant? I suppose it was over the course of many years. And really, it's it's something that's evolved uh, through a process of realizing that the possibility of using the principles by which we see to create spaces for people to see differently. Because if we're going to see differently, well, we have to understand how we see in the first place. And what, was, what became increasingly fascinating to me is that many of the secrets of what it is to be human reside in the most basic aspects of perception of the world. In fact, I'd suggest that almost everything we do begins with perception.
0: So when you talk about seeing differently, what exactly are you talking about?
1: Well, the ability to see differently is really about uh, creativity. It's about stepping in some sense, um, at least metaphorically, stepping outside your own experiences to see the world and see yourself and see others in a new way. And that's fundamental to uh, a fundamental aspect of creativity, which itself is related to innovation and being adaptable. From
0: the book, I understand that you have spent many years in the lab, but at some point you decided that you needed to step out of the lab. And I'm wondering... If there was a particular moment when you started becoming curious about how it is at all that you knew about neuroscience and perception mattered in, in the outside world, mattered in people's everyday lives, there was, a, there was a particular anecdote, a particular experience you had that made you think, I, I need to talk about this, I need to write about this uh, so that people can understand.
1: Yeah, there, it's, again, this is something that evolved with time. And as I was doing my talks and telling people about the nature of perception, I realized that, of course, that um, when we look out into the world, we're actually looking through the network. We're looking through our brains. And people found the insights in how and why they see what they do uh, really quite uh, fundamental in thinking about who they are as people. And so... I found that aspect of the work so fundamental uh, that uh, I continued that process for, for many years and then finally culminating in this book. Um, and again, the ultimate aim is to, to create an opportunity for people to step out. Well, now I'm just repeating myself, but to create the opportunity for people to rethink who they are in relation to how and why they see what they do.
0: So so how does perception, I mean, I, I want to go back to the basics here. How does perception from a neuroscientific point of view end up affecting the way that we see ourselves and conceive of ourselves?
1: Well, it begins with the question of whether or not we see the world accurately. And if you think that you see the world accurately, then that necessitates certain interactions with the world, a certain way of being in the world. And I would argue that most everybody thinks, at least intuitively, that they have an objective view of the world. In fact, if that weren't true, then arguments and conflict wouldn't be the way they are. And one way I can uh, demonstrate that is just by asking people, do you believe in the concept of illusions? Do you think illusions exist? And almost everybody will raise their hand. And so if you think illusions exist, an illusion by definition is to see the world differently from the way it really is then you think you see the world accurately most of the time. But the point here is that actually the brain can't see the world accurately because it has no direct access to the physical world itself, which is not to say that the physical world doesn't exist. It's just that we don't see it, or at least we don't see it objectively. And once you create that possibility that what you're seeing is a subjective experience, it creates the possibility of entering your process perception in a different way and not just perception of the world but perception of other people perception of yourself
0: yeah i was i was starting to think that what you're talking about seems to have a lot of relevance to relationships and to how people understand each other as a psychologist i work a lot with couples and i feel like this could be really useful for my patients so can you tell us a little bit more about how this sort of Um, I don't know if it's a perceptual deficit, but how this kind of perceptual error that we all uh, commit all the time, how does it affect, how does it manifest in the way that people relate to each other?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, what you're talking about is fundamental to all the work. Uh, The primary aim of the book and the work is to create doubt in people, but not doubt in the sense that they – become reclusive, but doubt that enables them to step forward. So doubt combined with courage. And what do I mean by that? And how does this relate to, say, relationships? If if you think about conflict, the irony is that conflict is the only place where we have the possibility of learning. Conflict I define in terms of engaging in a situation that's different from what you expect. So in that sense, evolution itself is a conflicting process. Evolution comes to a boundary, and then it either steps forward or not. Hmm. So in human relationships, what we are often, I, I would suggest, trained to do is to enter conflict with certainty. We enter conflict with answers. So imagine you and I are in conflict. It would be as if you're at one end of a line, and I'm at the other end of the same line. And my task is to prove that you're wrong and to shift you towards me. And your task is exactly the opposite prove that I'm wrong, and shift me towards you. That, what I call closed conflict, is set up to win, but not to learn. Hmm. If if I shift you towards me, I don't go anywhere. I haven't learned anything. All I've done is I've actually won. And in fact, often when people shift towards you, it's not because they agree with you or believe with you. It's just because you are more intimidating, you are more aggressive, more angry, etc. And... So, so much of our conflict is set up that way, and that's a tremendous problem for interpersonal relationships, but also your experience of the world itself. But biology does it in a different way. Imagine entering conflict with a question instead of an answer. Imagine entering conflict with doubt and with uncertainty instead of certainty. Now you actually have the possibility of listening and actually of shifting yourself not necessarily even towards the other person, but away from where you are at the moment. You actually have the possibility of learning. And the only way you can do that is if you have doubt, is if you don't hold too strongly to this objective view of the world, but that you might be wrong, or in the very least that your perceptions come from your history, which means the perceptions of the other person is coming from their history. So at least you can enter conflict with respect and with the desire to actually learn the other person.
0: But, but in your work, I mean, have you – do you feel like you've gained any insight about how to get people to let go of their objective reality and, and how to convince – how to persuade people to want to learn? Because I don't I – don't, I'm sure a lot of people when they're in conflict, they're not thinking I want to learn something here. They are thinking I am right and I, I need to prove this to the other person. So like how do you convince someone to let go of that?
1: yeah it's it's a it's a fundamental challenge and in fact it's a challenge that is uh, grounded in evolution the problem that we face when we are in that situation is that we hate not knowing because to not know was to die during evolution if you couldn't predict if you weren't sure that was a predator it was too late so All the data that your brain receives is inherently meaningless because it could mean anything. The data doesn't tell you what to do. It conflates multiple attributes of the world, size and distance, for instance. uh, For your listeners, if if you ask them to hold up their finger and line it up with something that's far away and large so that your finger and that far object are the same size, well, of course, they're not the same size. But as far as your retina is concerned, they are projecting exactly the same. So the data that your brain is getting is uncertain, and your brain evolved to take that uncertainty and make it certain. Hmm. So when we're in a situation of uncertainty, we absolutely hate it because it increases the possibility of dying during evolution. So almost all of our behaviors are designed to decrease uncertainty, to maximize efficiency. Hmm. And, the, um, and, and so that's one of the reasons why when we're in conflict – we want to enter with an answer or certainty because what we're trying to do is increase certainty and predictability in our world so how do you get people to step into uncertainty which is the only place you can go if you're ever to see something differently whether it be the other person, the world or yourself and that's a really hard problem but fortunately evolution also gave us a solution to that and because it's such a a essential place to be and one example is that it's a, it's a way of being. And we have certain instances in our, in our world where we manifest that, and one example is science. Science is really about stepping into uncertainty, and not just with fear, but actually with desire. Hmm. Love uncertainty in science. Science is not about increasing certainty, it's about decreasing certainty, it's about asking questions. And it's asking about great questions which challenge what you assume to be true already. So, But what is science? Science is nothing other than playing with intention. In fact, art, anything that is creative, is embracing uncertainty where you actually like it. So imagine entering conflict with the desire to learn, that you actually want to learn. But we have so much feedback that conflict is negative because it so often is that we then shy away from it. But imagine you turned it around because we have conflict in the lab. We love it because we actually feel like we have the possibility of expanding our space of possibility.
0: Can, can you tell us about one of your maybe most memorable experiments in your lab and what you learned from it?
1: Well, we have, I mean, I suppose lots of experiments, what, um, but the, I suppose, I mean, my lab works at many different levels. So, for instance, my lab works the levels of growing brain cells in a dish where we're looking at the factors, the molecules that are responsible for brain growth. We work on human behavior. So we'll sit people in front of computers, have them look at something, or in fact we actually take the lab and we put it in the real world and uh, and we look to see how people engage with each other in the natural habitat, as well as we evolve artificial neural networks and we're looking at artificial life. So effectively we're looking at the the computational principles of perception, the physiological and the behavioral um, aspects of perception, trying to link them. And for me, one of my favorite observations is that the molecules that your brain needs to grow are released by the targets of your brain cells. So you have certain parts of your brain that send their connections to other parts of your brain. And the targets of those cells actually produce molecules that are needed for their survival. Mm. But how much they release is dependent on how active they are. So your brain has actually evolved to evolve. It's adapted to adapt. It's continually redefining normality and shaping itself according to how active you are. And if you have a more complex world, you'll have a more complex brain. If you have a less complex world, you have a less complex brain. So it's constantly redefining normality. And what you see is relative to your normal. So the brain and- is made to,
0: to evolve and change.
1: Yeah, con- yes, because and that's that's an an essential thing and and one of the one of the great things about perception is that when you tell people that you have no objective view of the world, often people feel get frightened from that. They'll say, "Well, if that's true, I mean, what are we seeing?" and and it feels like suddenly they're lost. But actually, it's wonderfully freeing because it means you have the possibility of being part of the process of making sense of yourself and why is this essential it's because what was once useful may no longer be useful so you what evolution development and learning give you are utility when you open your eyes you don't see the world objectively you don't see the world that's actually in front of you nor do you see the data what you see is what was useful to see in the past (coughs) but because the world changes what was once useful may no longer be useful and what's more the meaning of one element of the world might change depending on the context. A rock has very different meanings for a human than it does for an ant, and so we're constantly creating and recreating meanings according to our physical interaction with the world.
0: I, I'm, I'm wondering how your subjects, how your participants react when they when they encounter this in your experiments in your lab. Have you had any memorable moments where you've seen? Um, The way people respond once they realize they don't see the world accurately.
1: Yeah. um, In my experience, people can respond very positively depending on how you present it. So I try to present it in a very playful, uh, very encouraging way. So when people walk out of the talks or when they walk out of the experiments or the experiences, because we also create experiences for people in the real world so they can engage with this process, They walk away with the desire to change because – as opposed to being sort of afraid of it. And why is that? It's because – and we also work, for instance, with kids in schools. And we use science not only to teach them about the world and themselves but also as a Trojan horse to teach them how to become adaptable. Hmm. Right? And because – I mean we – I mean, as an aside, we don't really teach science in schools. We teach the history of science. We teach children how to be sous chefs, not chefs. Oh. We teach them answers and efficiency. We don't teach them how to ask a question. In fact, we only teach them what is a good question. So if we can uh, encourage them to step into possi- step into uncertainty... And what's required for that is courage rather than confidence. We focus so much on confidence, and that's, of course, important. But far more interesting and far more fundamental is courage. To do something when you're not sure what's going to happen is far, far more essential. Then people have this desire to actually see differently. And what's more, they have the desire to create spaces for other people to, ste- um, to see differently.
0: So can, can you tell us about what you do with the kids?
1: Yes. So we created what we call the iScientist program. And the iScientist program is effectively science taught as a way of being as opposed to a methodology. The result is that the program uh, enabled the youngest published scientists in the world. They published a paper on bumblebees and how bumblebees see at 8 to 10 years old. And one of the students became the youngest ever TED speaker. When she joined me on stage on one of my TED Talks, at, she was the uh, age of 12. And she's now touring the world giving talks. At, uh, she's now 17 years old. Wow. Uh, and we also work with kids that have had some very difficult backgrounds. And again, the aim is not simply to make little scientists and say, well, here's a scientific method. Of course, the scientific method is essential, but I'd suggest that's the craft of science. That's not what defines science. What defines science is the ability to have a sense of wonder and awe. So our first step is we try to encourage and create that sense of awe, because if you don't care, you're not gonna ask a question. And I don't care what the kids care about, I just want them to care. Hmm. And the second step is to ask why, why this, why that, and then what if. So what if is effectively just starting to design an experiment. And then it's all in Ws. Then you have wow, which is the observation. And then you have who cares, which is the sharing. Hmm. And that sharing becomes the wonder for the next cycle. So that is effectively the scientific process, but I'd suggest that that is itself the creative process. But it begins with, first of all, knowing that everything you do has a bias and assumption. Not sometimes, but always. Hmm. But again, we think that we're seeing this objective view of the world, but what perception tells us is that As soon as you open your eyes, you're seeing the world through your biases and assumptions that come from your history, but not just yours, but your cultural history and your evolutionary history. In fact, most of your biases were created independent from you. Most of your life happened without you there, in a way. And then the next step is to, if you can acknowledge that, is to know what your biases are. But almost always, we don't know why we do what we do. So then it's about revealing your own biases to yourself, which almost always involves other people hence the power of diversity of groups and then the next step is to question those biases which puts you into uncertainty which means you need to question them within a certain context and that's the context of discovery the context of play with intention and these are all aspects of what it is to be a great scientist but the aspects of what it is to be a critical thinker and creative
0: do you have an example to illustrate the kind of biases you're talking
1: about yeah, so there could be some very fundamental biases, like, for instance, assuming that the light comes from above that hmm. you come into hmm. the world with. Another bias is <clears> that you <throat> look down onto surfaces. But we'll also have other biases, like the um, safety bias, that a lot of your biases are geared towards not dying as opposed to living. You see what I mean? Hmm. You also have a confirmation bias, which many people will know about, where you look for evidence that proves what you assume to be true already. This will even affect your eye movements. Um, So, which, which means that as soon as you find this confirmatory evidence, you feel even more confident about your biases, which makes it even harder to step away from them. I'm actually
0: interested in the first thing that you said, though, because I'm not sure I, I fully grasped it. You talked about I, thinking that light comes from above. What do you mean? Yeah.
1: So I mean, basically, we come in, you know, our, our bodies come in and our brains come into the world with an understanding of physics, not at the mathematical level, but at a, at a fundamentally deeply intuitive level. And one aspect of our world is that we have this illumination that tends to come from above. So we can create illusions and images that when you look at them, the way you see them uh, uh, requires an assumption that the light comes from above. It has to do with, for instance, shading of uh, of an object. So if I present you with, on the computer or on a piece of paper, uh, a uniform gray surface, but then in the middle of that uniform gray surface is, say, a circle. But the circle has a gradient of light going down to dark. Mm-hmm. Your brain will see that as an, as an object that's coming out of the surface, coming away from the surface towards you. That only can happen, it only makes sense if your brain is assuming that that gradient is generated from the light coming from above and it's creating a shadow, what's called an attached shadow on that surface. Mm. So you see it as a dot coming away. Now, if you simply invert that gradient so that it's dark going to light, you now see it as a dimple. You see it as going in.
0: So, So the our perception why don't you tell me what what that means about our perception
1: what that means about your perception is that as soon as again as soon as you open your eyes you're seeing the world according to your history of experience you're seeing the world according to the history of what you saw before because you have no access to the physical world you can't see objects as they really are you can't see them directly right the only data this goes back to berkeley The philosopher and and Bishop Berkeley, the only data information you get from the world is the data arising from the world, the electrochemical energy that falls into your senses, the vibrations that go into your ear, the light that falls onto your retina, right? the friction that happens on your skin. That's your only information that you have from the world. But that data could literally mean anything. So your brain has to use another kind of data, which is history. It's what that data meant for your behavior in the past. Mm. What was Mm. useful? What did you do that was useful when presented with that data? And not just you, but your evolutionary ancestors, as well as your culture, etc. So your brain is basically, the functional structure of your brain represents that history of interacting with the world. And what's fascinating is that means that color, for instance, is not a function of the world. Light exists, electromagnetic radiation exists, it's just that it's not colored. The color is what we see. So when people look out and they see something red or blue or green, the color couldn't be closer to them. It's inside their head, projected outward. You color the world. So if a tree falls in the wood and no one's there to hear it, does it doesn't make a sound. No, it creates energy, of course, but it doesn't make a sound. The sound doesn't exist if our brain isn't there to make it.
0: I gotta, I gotta jump in because this is really, this is getting very trippy. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here <laughs> with, with your book, which is a bright neon green, or so it looks to me. And are you saying to me that outside of my brain and my eyes, your book in the real, tangible world may not actually look the way it looks in my, I guess, in my, in my mind.
1: That's right. The book exists. The, the physicality of the world exists. It's reflecting light. Light is hitting that surface. In fact, electromagnetic radiation is hitting that surface. We're sensitive to a very small part of electromagnetic radiation, which we call light, four to seven hundred nanometers. That then reflects off the surface. Some of it is absorbed. Some of it then comes and happens to fall into your retina and activates your receptors. Right. But that process itself has no color about it then your brain takes the activity of your retina and translates it into color because it was useful to do so and that engenders a certain behavioral interaction with the world but the surface is not colored all it does is reflect light reflect and absorb photons right and so and you can never see the surface in of itself because the surface is always under changing illumination.
0: Well, that's the, that's the scary part to me that you're saying. The sur- the surface is not colored. That's right. Be- because then that means that the, we're, we're seeing the world. I, I mean, this is essentially the thesis of your book, not as it is.
1: No, but we see it in a way that's useful. So take, for instance, again, color, which, again, is one of our simplest perceptions, seeing the the intensity of light, seeing the quality of light. You couldn't get any simpler than that and more basic than that. And if you think about our color perception, we actually have four categories of color, red, green, blue, and yellow. There's nothing categorical about light. Light is a continuous function, a continuous distribution of wavelengths. And yet we break those into four categories of color. What's more, perception of color is a circle going from red, green, blue to yellow, which means that blue and red appear more similar to each other than they do to green. And yet blue and red are generated by wavelengths that are exactly opposite. So 400 nanometers, small wavelengths, are perceived as blue, longer wavelengths 700 nanometers are perceived as red and yet that perception of red and blue means that they wrap around and are sitting next to each other that's like a hundred kilos feeling just like one kilo right and so color is this three-dimensional space but light is not Mm. so Mm. why is that it's because it was useful not because the brain is trying to represent the world accurately because even if it did the accurate representation still doesn't tell you what to do. You still have to engage with the world. We keep forgetting that our brains evolved in a body and our body evolved in a world. So perception almost lives in that space between. It lives in the ecology. It lives in the interaction. Mm. But what's fascinating is that what's true for perceptions of color is also true for our perceptions of other people. So while we can actually measure other other people's behavior – their what they're doing and when they're doing it and where they're doing it what we can't measure is their why we can't measure why they're doing it because that's inside their heads and just like you have no access to the physical object you have no access to what's inside someone else's head so in the same way that we color the world we project colors out in the world we also project people's why onto them we project their personality onto them we project why they're doing something But that's coming from our history.
0: Right, in psychoanalysis, we would call that transference.
1: Exactly. And the argument here is we have no option but to do that. Hmm. Every personality that you perceive is literally inside you projected outward in the same way that every color you perceive is inside you projected outward.
0: I mean, you're kind of stumbling into an argument that psychoanalysts have had for a long time. You know, Freud believed in the early days that our job was to sort of correct these distortions that we're constantly making. More contemporary folks feel like we have to we have to work with the fact that everything, in some ways, that we perceive is a distortion. And what I find compelling about your book is you. And tell me if I'm understanding you correctly. It it sounds like you are arguing that this kind of uncertainty, this kind of error and doubt that um, is inherent in our perception, is a good thing and can even be an engine for creativity, for success. Am I understanding you right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. So a lot of these ideas, of course, have been suggested, well, for thousands of years, in fact. Um, And so in some sense, that's not new. The question is, who cares? What's the significance of it? And the argument here is that these, in fact, are not errors, that these are actually fundamental ways of perceiving the world, and it's what we actually have, and that actually creates the potential of freedom, of power. Because if what I'm seeing is grounded in my history, then how is it possible to ever step outside my history and be creative? How could I ever see differently? And so there's this common sense notion that creativity is the linking of two things that are very disparate. And the argument here is that that isn't actually what creativity is doing. The argument here is that your brain never makes a big jump it only is ever making a, a small step to the next most likely possible but that your space of possibility is determined by your biases and assumptions right they constrain you and that's good because every time i take a step my brain has hundreds of assumptions that the floor is not going to give way that my legs aren't going to give way these assumptions and biases keep you alive but they also constrain you so at any moment in time my brain is basically making a decision should i go forward or should i go back i'm only ever making a decision to go to the next most likely possible but what is most likely for me is different from what's most likely for you because i have different biases and assumptions so when you see someone being creative and you say wow how did you bring those two things that are far apart together well for them they weren't far apart it was an obvious next step for them it's for you that they are far apart because and for you, they are far apart in your space of possibility. You can even maybe even see it, but for them it's obvious. Why? Because they have different biases and assumptions, because they have a different history. They have a different history of meanings that they attach to circumstances. So once you understand that, it means that there's nothing creative about creativity. Creativity is created from the outside, not from the inside. From the inside, how do you see differently? Well, first, again, you accept that you're, everything you do has a bias, and then once you question your biases and change them, you actually change your space of possibility. You actually change what's next to you. It's just that you don't know what's going to be next to you, hence the uncertainty.
0: So, so can you illustrate this for us, how this actually works among humans, like how, yeah. how this
1: actually works in everyday life? Uh, in everyday life, actually, I can I can suggest or demonstrate a, even a more fundamental aspect because if it's true there, it has to be true all the way up in a sense. So in the book, I have uh, a little flip book. In fact, it's the first motion illusion in a book. So you actually flip the book, and you'll in the corner you'll have a little diamond. I noticed and, that, yeah. Yeah, and you'll see the diamond spinning, right? And most everybody will see it spinning in the same direction, which is left to right. And it's because their brain will assume that the central plane of that diamond, that they're looking down on it. So they'll see it spinning from left to right, because that's the most likely perception given that information based on your history. The idea that it's spinning in the opposite direction is impossible to see. Right? It's in the very periphery of your space of possibility. Is in fact a physical possibility. But given your bias and assumptions of looking down on the central plane, you can't see it. Okay. Then, what you, what I get people to do, and which I suggest in the book, is imagine looking up at that central surface rather than down. In other words, change your bias, change your assumption. And as soon as people do that, the diamond appears to flip and go in the opposite direction.
0: I just did it now. I
1: see. <laughs> yeah, I, c- I see exactly what you're talking about. Nothing's changing. All that's doing is you're changing your <clears throat> bias. Now, what was once impossible to see becomes inevitable, and what was previously inevitable to see becomes impossible. Right? Right. That is the process of creativity. You changed your bias, and now you saw things differently. But what you saw was inevitable. You just took another small step, but you changed the whole space of possibility around you. And the only way you can do that is if you change your bias and assumptions. In fact, I'd suggest that there's even a more interesting way of changing your bias assumptions, which is to complexify them rather than just simply change them. What do you mean by that? So imagine you're on a line and you imagine your space of possibility is just a single line, right? All you can do is move forward or backward at any point in time, metaphorically. So you have one dimension of, uh, uh, of movement now imagine that at any point in time you're on a plane instead of a line now you have two directions you're not only going to go forward and back you can also go right and left now imagine your space of possibility is three dimensions now you can go all kinds of different directions imagine you have now a 10-dimensional space at any point in time there are lots of different directions you could actually go in it's a bit like uh you're crossing a river and instead of just having stepping stones that are always just leading you forward or backward, you have stepping stones that are all around you. You can go in lots of different directions. Right? That is what it is to be open, to have possibility. That's having a complex search space. That complex search space means you have lots of different kinds of biases and assumptions rather than just very narrow, specific ones. Right? And that's, enables people to be adaptable at any point in time that's what conflict learning from conflict gives you is a more complex search space which makes you more adaptable and we know the most successful systems in nature are the most adaptable the most successful companies are the ones that are most adaptable the ones that are constantly challenging what they assume to be true already
0: i'm noticing that you didn't call your book adapt. You called it deviate. And I'm wondering, you know, why did you call it deviate? What do you mean by
1: that word? I mean it both literally uh, and metaphorically. So and the the reason for choosing the word deviate specifically uh, is because if you want to shift people, my suggestion is you start with what they think they already know. I could have chosen a completely different word. In fact, I could have made up a word. And I could have come up with a whole set of different kinds of languages and symbols that they would then have had to learn. But then it would have felt like they didn't shift. They just sort of jumped. But if I can get people to rethink what it is to deviate, then they're actually experiencing the process of deviating itself. So the whole book is designed to be a trope. And the process of deviating is literally the process of starting at the first page and going to the last page. And I start at the very beginning of the book is I want, them, I want the reader to know less at the end of the book than they think they know at the beginning. Because, again, nothing interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing. Hmm. It begins hmm. with doubt. So the word deviate is to be different, to be different from, say, normal average. And this we can use an example of human relationships. You and I we could actually create sort of a Venn diagram of who you and I are and there would be a great deal of overlap between us of animal of human of male etc and that bit that overlaps you and I is in a sense what it is to be normal what it is to be average that is what's common between us but what defines us is not what's common between us it's the bits that don't overlap it's the bits that deviate The bits that deviate from average from normal. So to love someone, for instance, is not to love their averageness or their normality. It's to love their deviance. It's to love the bits that don't overlap because that's what defines them.
0: So you, you make the argument that we admire as a society people who deviate, people like Oscar Wilde, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr. Why is that?
1: It's a really interesting question because we actually have a love-hate relationship with them because at the time, many people didn't admire them. It's in retrospectively that we do. Because these people were not being creative in the sense that we think of creative putting two things far apart together. They were simply just being themselves and having the courage to go to what was their most likely possible. And despite that their next step was deviant relative to the society's next step. And we have this love-hate relationship with uncertainty and certainty. While we all try to increase certainty in our lives, we also know that the only way to see differently is to deviate from that certainty. And so, you know, as I say in the book, have you ever seen an average hero, right? And so we both So we cherish and love people who have that courage to be in uncertainty. And uncertainty in this sense is relative to society because to not be within society, to step outside society is incredibly challenging and difficult because to not be social was to die during evolution. To be excommunicated was to be on your own, increase the probability of death. So it's essential to be part of a group. And so therefore even more challenging to deviate from that group. But a lot of these people, they aren't deviating simply because they want to be different. They're following what makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. It's just that it doesn't make sense to us because they have a different space of possibility. They're making small steps. It's just for us, they're big steps, because again, we have a different set of assumptions and biases. But as a consequence, they expand what is possible for us because if we incorporate their biases into ours we actually learn we complexify we and we know from complex systems theory the best solutions exist in a more complex space than in a simple space
0: it sounds like one consisting of people who have different biases because yes. by pitting those people or not pitting them by putting them together and sort of interacting with people with different biases you kind of that contrast forces you to stretch and maybe see see things from the other person's point of view, which to that person seems so normal.
1: Absolutely. And the irony is that sometimes the best people to reveal your own biases to you is not you. It's someone else. But someone else in a context where revealing biases and questions is actually positive rather than negative because Mm -hmm. so much of our society is built towards efficiency, etc., And one of the best environments for maximizing efficiency is competition. But that's exactly opposite the environment that you want when you're actually encouraging questions and doubt. And so if you think about the best technologies, the best technologies are those that make the invisible visible, that reveal our biases to ourselves or expand them. So a microscope, a telescope, when we thought we were the center of the universe – and suddenly with the advent of the telescope we can, and mathematics, we actually saw that that was not, in fact, correct. We expanded what became possible.
0: So, Bo, we're almost out of time. Before we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit about your lab of misfits and also what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, well, the Lab of Misfits is basically my lab, and it's composed of misfits. <laughs> it's composed of people who are neuroscientists, designers, uh, choreographers, and it's a, it's a group in uh, a loose affiliation and sometimes tight affiliation of people who come together to create experiments as experiences where the research happens in the real world. Because if you want to understand what it is to be human, we have to study people in their natural habitat. Not in a lab. A lab is just another theater. People behave in a lab often the way they think they're supposed to. So we create, for instance, these experiences. This is one thing we do. There are a number of things we do. And we call it the experiment. And the idea is that it can be a theater nightclub setting. And so people are drinking, they're dancing, etc. But the point is to not just get insight into what it is to be human, but to then to give the data back to people who came so they walk away with a better understanding of themselves. Because often as soon as you tell something to someone, you've taken it from them. But if they can discover it and help us discover, then that's a very different kind of interaction. And actually they will embody the understanding. It's understanding rather than just knowing or rather than just knowledge. Rather than just information and data, it becomes understanding and wisdom. So it's trying to create that environment where we better understand what it is to be human. And then people walk away with better understanding themselves.
0: And we'll, are you touring the book?
1: Uh, I am. So I've been doing a number of talks and interviews like this. And now I'm about to head to Britain to uh, um, to do some talks at the Hay uh, Book Festival, etc. over there. Uh, and so it's it's um, been very exciting and um, really fulfilling process.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show and for talking to us about this. I feel like Uh, we could all learn some really important things about how we interact with the world. I know you've given me a lot to think about. I'm still going to be thinking about this color thing for a while. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show, Bo. Thank you. That was my interview with Bo Lotto, author of the book Deviate, The Science of Seeing Differently, published in 2017 by Hatchet Press. This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology. Until next time, have a great week.